for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne on this Tuesday night. When did sleep originate? What organism on this planet first decided to take a snooze? Truth is, scientists don't know exactly, but research into jellyfish can offer a few clues. We meet the researcher who did that work to find out why. Team Canada kicks off its Women's Soccer World Cup exactly one month from today against Nigeria in Melbourne. Expectations are high for the seventh-ranked Canadians after that gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics. And midfielder Quinn joins me to talk tournament, being a veteran on the team, and mentorship in general. We head to Seoul to get a better idea of why there is so much concern these days about a growing humanitarian crisis in North Korea, the so-called Hermit Kingdom has become even more insular and repressive under Kim Jong-un during the pandemic. But first, the search for a missing submersible and the five people on board, including the CEO of the company that built the Titan, as it's called, continues tonight. We meet a BC businessman and philanthropist who dove down to the Titanic on the same submersible not once, but twice in 2021 and 2022, including with some of the very same people missing in that vessel tonight and find out why he believes there may be some hope here for their survival. But let's start tonight back in the North Atlantic because the search uh, for that missing submersible carrying five people that was on a dive down to the wreck of the Titanic, some 12,000 feet uh, below sea level in uh, the North Atlantic, continued today. They have searched a huge amount of territory at this point, uh, just a really massive amount of territory looking for this. Uh, and so far, nothing for the time being. Uh, 26,000 square kilometers apparently was today. The U.S. Coast Guard said that this afternoon. Now, this search involves a lot of different vessels. A Canadian Air Force's Aurora is up looking around as well. And again, 26,000 square kilometers, but has turned up no sight of the lost sub. U.S. Coast Guard Captain James Frederick says the cable-laying ship Deep Energy is on the scene now, providing some underwater searching with a remotely operated vehicle, and also that time could be running out. They don't know. Uh, 96 hours of life support is how much this vessel is believed to have. They think at this point there's about two days left of oxygen uh, if it is still intact and functioning. They have rendezvoused with the vessel Polar Prince and commenced an ROV dive at the last known of the position of the Titan, and the approximate position of the Titanic wreck. That operation is currently ongoing. We know a bit more about who exactly is on board. Stockton Rush is the chief executive of Ocean Gate, which owns the Titan, the submersible. He's organized the dives. This is really his brainchild, uh, as well as a businessman and his 19-year-old son from Pakistan, a British billionaire, and a renowned French diver and Titanic explorer, explorer as well, are all believed to be on board. Uh, now, this comes as there have been, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of people digging in to the history of this vessel, to the history of the company, and there has been some safety concerns raised about the Titan itself going back several years now. In 2018, the Manned Underwater Vehicles Committee of the Marine Technology Society sent a letter signed by some three dozen people warning that they had unanimous concern about Ocean Gate's development of the carbon fiber and titanium vessel uh, called the Titan. Uh, meantime, though, in videos posted to the, to the company's YouTube channel, some of the dozens of people brought down to see the Titanic since 2021 speak of both the wonder but also the inherent risks and and the company's focus on safety. Ocean Gate Expeditions offers you the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be a specially trained crew member safely diving to the Titanic wreckage site. 
get ready for what Jules Verne could only imagine, a 12,500 foot journey to the bottom of the sea. It's not a, a ride at Disney, you know. There's a lot of real risk involved and there's a lot of challenges. Every time you take to the sea, you know, there's so many things that have to go right. You know, all the electrical systems and navigation systems that have to check out. This is a very complex vehicle. Titan topside, you are out at 130 meters. We are in position for the dive. It's very well engineered and very safe. Right. Uh, so, so it's, you know, clearly there are, you know, if you're going to go 12,500 feet underwater, there's always going to be risks for these sorts of things. One person who knows it well is someone who's been on the Titan not once, but twice. Vancouver businessman and philanthropist Ron Toygo made the journey twice, including last year when, in fact, they got down to see the Titanic. Ron, thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, you know, I remember when you came back, because I remember there was a lot of attention to uh, that selfie that you'd taken and that journey that you had made. What must have run through your mind on Sunday when, when you first heard that this same vessel had gone missing? Because you know exactly what the situation would be like. You'd be able to picture it, to feel it. Yeah, I, you know what, I, I know exactly what, what they're going through. Uh, um, I know Stockton very well. I've known him for five years and um, and pH, it's on there as well, and then um, I just feel sick for for the for the family. And but and, but you know, one thing I do, Stockton is a brilliant guy, and um, he built it. And if anybody can figure out how to fix whatever the issue is, he's the guy that can do it. And um, and you know that I I think you know the time how much air they have, I think that's you know it's it's really dependent on 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 the capacity and what, how much they're using. And, um, and it, there's, it's a scrubber on there that takes the carbon monoxide out and, and you change the canister every three or four hours, depending on the levels, there's carbon monoxide monitors in there. And, um, so it, it you know, when we, when we went down, it was always, you've got five days. Um, and that's predicated on, you know, how much energy you use and how much you use up. So, so whether it's five days, six days, you know, possibly seven days, I, I think they probably have a little more time than, than what's out there. But um, no, it, it's a it's a small capsule, and uh, you've got to be, you know, you, you couldn't be claustrophobic. But as far as safety goes, uh, I tell you, I, I haven't been through any regiment on safety like we went through for that. Um, I my first thing was to go down to Everett and and take a ride on it. Uh, through the waters there and spend the day there We're only going right. down like 400 feet, but to, to understand what all the systems are and, and to make sure you can handle being in, in that size of a capsule for a period of time. And there isn't any anxieties to deal with it. And then when, when, when we got to St. John's um, virtually every day was, was, you know, checks and balances. And if this happens, this is what you do. And, and uh, you know, if, if the captain becomes incapacitated, this is what you do. And, so you know all this stuff about um, their their the neglect to safety is absolutely untrue. 
Right. I, I mean, I, I, this is this, as you probably well know, always happens when something happens like this, right? It's yeah, all absolutely. speculation. We don't know what went yeah. wrong. We, we, no one knows at this point what has gone wrong. But uh, there were certainly, I guess, there were those out there who had their concerns. I, I gather um, the CEO was someone who was seen by many as being quite a forward thinker, and he felt that the that the way that uh, the regulations were set up weren't allowing him to innovate. And is that right? And you know him. You've met him, of course. Uh, yeah. Vancouver and Everett aren't that far apart. No, no, they aren't. Well, my first trip was um, was an issue, and um, we um, the, the weights wouldn't release, and we virtually went right to the bottom of the ocean. And um, it, uh, at a thousand meters, you're supposed to start dropping weights to slow down your descent, and we had to start up the engines to, to slow us down. So when we landed a lot softer than you would have if you, if you couldn't have started out the engines, and and we had to figure out how to drop some weights so we could get back to the surface and um, uh, Stockton was very calm he explained everything that was going on um, explained you know uh, what had gone wrong and, um, and 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 what the solutions and the options were and we went through it methodically and it took four hours for maybe a little longer to get things worked out and then drop the weights and then float it back to the top but um, I've, I've seen them in action and, and when things went wrong, and, and, and I know uh, how organized they are and how structured they are, and uh, and then I've also experienced everything going right, and that was by far the best ex- adventure I've ever had. And uh, so, I, for the life of me, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know why it hasn't floated to the surface because um, all the weights rust off in 24 to 30 hours um, based on the squibs that are on them, and it automatically sur- resurfaces. So. I I wish I could, you know, you know. I mean, there's speculation they got hung up on something at the Titanic, which is possible because there's a lot of, you know, cranes and things still hanging around there that you could possibly get hooked on. Um, but eventually, you'd think it would pop free, as, as, as because the buoyancy of this thing when it's empty, it's it's trying to get up, and and there's a lot of force behind that. And, you know, everything on the Titanic is pretty rusted, so you think that would just break off, but um, who knows? The lack of communication is the thing. I mean, this is what came up last night. I I know you've been in this, uh, on the Mm -hmm. Titan twice. Yeah. Tell me about the, about the beacons and the communication and and how that works, because one would assume that, uh, that, that, you know, that no one... On, no one aboard. The whole point for even Stockton Rush is to, is to get down and come back. That's the point. That if he, mm-hmm. he was piloting or if he was on the vessel, uh, that everything would have been checked out before they went down. And there is a fairly, there's quite a bit of redundancy, I understand, when it comes to beacons, locations, communications, and so on. Uh, what do you think could have, I mean, the lack of communication is really the scary thing here, I think. Well, the lack of communication is the thing that I, I'm really uh, puzzled by. Because I know there's at least four different systems that I recall, and they're all different, struck different formats on you know one's analog, one's whatever, and and right back to Lorenz, I think. So so they were you know the fail-proof system, the old systems, and the new technology, and and to have every one of them not working says to me that that they're incapacitated, and and then something went wrong, um, and. Until until somebody comes to or something, they're yeah, they're unable to send any kind of message. So that's my biggest concern is is that because it they should have communicated or it should have floated to the top 
And even if they are incapacitated, it still should have floated to the top by now unless it's hung up on something. But one of the things that, that Stockton would talk about, his biggest fear out there, um, was floating debris in the ocean. Um, like there's, there's some fishing nets that are miles long that just float around in, at all depths of the water that have been dropped off these fishing boats um, from around the world, and you don't see them. And, and they're mammoth, and they can, they could uh, swallow a sub this size no problem. And um, you know, I'm not saying that's what happened, but that, but there's a lot of things in the ocean that you that shouldn't be there. John Toyko is with us this half hour, explaining what it's like to be on the submersible, the Titan, the same one that has gone missing, that uh, a large international effort is now trying to locate, and has been missing uh, since Sunday morning now, or Sunday midday. Uh, local time, about 700 uh, kilometers or 800 kilometers off the coast of Newfoundland at the site of the Titanic wreckage, uh, which is about uh, 3,800 meters down. It's a long way down. Um, Ron, you said at one point, of course, I mean, just to be inside, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit claustrophobic, not too bad, but it feels right. like, I mean, that, that, that period when you were stuck on the ocean floor, wow, I mean, it must have occurred to you at some point that this might be a little, little hairier than you'd expect. Yeah, well, you, you know, to be prepared, you're, you're, you're supposed to bring if you if you have medicine, you're supposed to bring a five day supply, and, and you're you're prepared to be down in it for five days if if the worst scenario comes about, which is what these guys are dealing with. And um, but you don't take a lot of food. I mean, they'll have, they'll have some food, um, and there's a number of bottles of water, and so you start figuring all that out. Um, but I don't think you'd ever run out of water because there's so much condensation that you're forever wringing out um, the, the the window to see out of it. And you've got plastic containers that you squeeze it into. So I think that they'll have enough water to, to sustain them for as long as they need to be. But it's cold. It's not, you know, but, but there's enough heat put off by everybody uh, in that sub to, to, to sustain a, a a tolerable heat level, but it'll be, you know, there'll probably be 40 degrees down there. And, um, it'll, uh, so I imagine they'll huddle close together to, to generate enough heat and, um, you know, and then wait for whatever's going to happen as far as, um, finding it or, or it popping up or, or, you know, another scenario that it has popped up, but, it, um, but it, by the time they started searching for it, it had already moved out of the zone with tides and winds and things, and and that's not a good scenario because there's no way of getting out of it. The only way you can get out of that thing is by being unbolted. They have to literally take the ship, take the nose off of it. There's no right, opening. It's on. There's no doors. It, it's uh, it is a sealed unit, and um, it's sealed until somebody from the outside opens it. Wow. I mean, you're not a, you're not someone to take unnecessary risks. Uh, you you don't when you look back at this now, you don't think you 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 got you escaped lucky. No, I mean, I I think it was a very well organized um, adventure, and uh, and but by no means that I not think there was any risk involved. It, it, you're going to you know three miles beneath the surface of the ocean, and there's always things that can go wrong. I mean. Um, the biggest thing was just getting 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 a, a trip that you could actually get down on, and the weather patterns are so bad there. It's um, I think on every 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 mission they're slated for five dives, and I think you know the best one they had over the last two years 
where they got two two down to the thing twice. So a lot of things have to go right just to make it there. Um, and so when when technology fails, um, you're not likely to make it there for. But but by all accounts, everything in the past they've always made it back. And um, so uh, hopefully. That, that there is some way that that's going to happen this time. Yeah, I know this must be personal for you too, because you you can picture you can picture um, some of the people on board there. You were with them. You were the, you were sitting there beside them, just yeah. like they are. Yeah. Hopefully now. Yeah. No. No. I, I can vision the whole thing, and and I can vision what they're going through, and um, it, uh, and, and and the anxiety of every day is going to be greater to deal with. And then I know that they do they do have medication to calm people down if they get too excited to, and you know for situations like this and um but um again it, it i i i wish i could come up with some answers but uh hopefully they do and um and and this this is one of those things where not many people are expecting a good outcome right now but um i still knowing what i know how how you can survive in that thing that you actually do have time, and if, if they can find it, there's still a good chance that uh, there are going to be survivors on it. Well, Ron, I, I certainly hope you're correct. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. You have a unique perspective on, on all of this, and I'll never yeah. forget your return and how we talked about it. Um, thanks yeah. again. All right. Thanks. Take care. A government step back from providing the housing that people need. Uh, as a result, speculators stepped in, buying and flipping homes for profit, at the expense of everyday people who needed to find a place to live. And that failure uh, drove the housing crisis that we're seeing today and has left us with a critical shortage of the housing that we need. That's BC Premier David Eby uh, announcing some new housing. And it, it is a problem that every government at every level faces right across this country. How do you make up for so much lost time when it comes to the housing supply? As uh, the Premier of BC was mentioning, for a long time, there simply wasn't enough built. And now there's demand for it, a lot of demand for it. And um, there are a lot of barriers in the way to making housing more affordable for the average Canadian. If you look at what happened in May prices were up. The national average home price is now $729,000. That's up 3.2% from a year earlier. Uh, the average topped $1 million in the GTA and in several parts of BC. Um, and it's not just rents, of course. It's not just buying and selling or owning. Rents, too, uh, have become a huge problem. The rental market is absolutely, uh, in many ways, way too expensive for a lot of people in this country. Meantime, Canada's Federal Housing Agency is worried that affordability will actually deteriorate further unless the country acts on those supply challenges that David Eby was talking about soon. Uh, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation rang alarm bells last summer when it estimated the country needs to build 3.5 million more homes, not just 3.5 million homes, 3.5 million more homes by 2030 than it is on track to build to reach some semblance of affordability. Last night, we spoke with the Atlantic columnist David Frum, who still spends a lot of time in his hometown of Toronto, about these issues surrounding housing supply and demand in this country. The way you get more affordable housing is you build lots and lots and lots of new construction, lots of it. And then the previously new construction, that becomes a little bit less desirable. And the next generation after that, that becomes less desirable. And the way you get affordable housing is not building purpose-built 
affordable housing. It's through this constant renewal of the housing stock. The Atlantic columnist David Frum was on the show last night. It's a great interview, by the way. If you, you can hear it on the podcast, every night we put a podcast together of the interviews that appear on A Little More Conversation. You can find that at a littlemoreconversation.com or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Uh, and here's the worrying part. The annual pace of housing starts. That's when a measure of when construction on homes begins. And it really is a major indicator of how uh, housing supply gaps are being addressed. It dropped 23% in May compared with April. 23% it was down. Uh, as starts of apartments, condos, and other types of multi-unit housing projects in Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal fell. So we're not just, we don't just need a lot more homes that are already planned to be built. We're falling behind. In fact, the CMHC estimates that only about 210 to 220 will be built this year, 2023, across the country. And that, of course, is cause for alarm. Uh, Bob Dugan is the chief economist at the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, and he joins me now. Bob, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Everyone has an opinion about the housing market, right? Since a lot of us are in it or rent in it or own in it, it's a pretty sobering assessment of, of, of where we're at here in 2023. What is the issue? You're sounding the alarm again. You did last year. You are again this year. What's happening out there? Well, you know, we're, we're seeing a recovery in home ownership demand and prices starting to come up again. And, and with that, you know, we, we, we look at this sort of affordability situation um, last year. We had, you know, interest rates came up dr dramatically, of course. And, and, you know, so a lot fewer people were buying homes. Prices came down. But during that whole time, the increase in interest rates more than offset that and affordability got worse. Now we've got this combination of, you know, we, interest rates have even come up a little bit more and house prices are starting to recover. Meanwhile, all that demand that didn't happen in the ownership market put a lot of pressure on the rental market. And so uh, there was no free lunch here. You know, there was eroding affordability in the ownership market, but then in the rental market as well. I know you look at places like Toronto, we look at the rental market with uh, some new metrics now. And we mm -hmm. developed this measure of rents that distinguishes between rents in units where a tenant turned over versus rents in unit where the same tenant stayed in place. And that makes a difference because when you stay in place, often you're protected by rent control agreements. However, when you when an apartment unit changes hand, the new tenant faces the market. And in Toronto, the rent increases in units where there was turnover last year was 29% wow. compared to 2.3% in, uh, in, in, uh, in units where the tenant stayed in place. Uh, you know, Vancouver, also a similar story here. In Vancouver, the rent increase in turnover units was, you know, a little over 18%. For tenants that stayed in place, uh, it was only 2.9%. And so, you know, big differences there uh, indicating that there's a real supply shortage and affordability for everyone right now is is, is really, you know, coming under pressure. And it's all, as you've mentioned in numerous times in your reports at the CMHC, it's all interconnected. So when people get stuck in the rental market, they can't get into the into the home ownership market, which then sticks other people trying to get into their rentals behind them. And the whole thing just clogs up and becomes, if you find yourself in the market, it becomes that much more expensive. So no one wants to, right? Or no one can. Absolutely. And, it, you know, I, I often use this an analogy that you know, the housing market is a little bit like a balloon. And, you know, when something squeezes one part of the market, you know, so like last year when when interest rates went up, it squeezed the home ownership market. Well, the balloon blows up somewhere else sort of thing. Right. And right. last year, that was the rental market. And, and that happens in an environment where there just isn't enough supply. And, you know, uh, we estimated last year that, you know, between 2022 and 2030, we would need an additional three and a half million 
new homes created above and beyond what we were forecasting to be built anyway, uh, which amounts to essentially between 2022 and 2030, we had to double the pace of housing starts. And here we are in 2023, the numbers are in for 2022, and, you know, starts actually slowed down. So in 2021, we had about 270,000 starts. Last year, it was about 260,000. This year, we're forecasting somewhere around the 220,000 starts. In other words, starts aren't doubling. They're going the they're other dropping. way. <laughs> they're dropping. They're, they're coming down. And, and historically, 211,000 starts is a relatively strong number, but it's not what we need to meet the demand that's there now. And so there's a gap between the level of demand and the level of supply, and that gap is growing. And that's the problem. And so, you know, we, we're going to go through this period of adjustment in the economy, you know, maybe even a modest recession later this year, early next year. But when we come through all that, my worry is the long-term trend with such strong demand for housing or, or supply shortage, really, um, is affordability is likely to deteriorate between now and 2030 rather than improve unless we can really do something to get those homes built that we're talking about, that three and a half million homes. Yeah, you're, you're saying essentially it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, and I think a lot of people out there listening to this will be will be a bit alarmed by that by that prognosis. Yeah, and, 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 and certainly it's not something we want to forecast. But, no. you know, um, when you think about the environment for home building right now, it's not a very easy environment. I mean, interest rates are high. Uh, the, the unemployment rate in Canada is 5.2%. It's very low. So there's not a lot of idle, unemployed people out there that we can just, you know, recruit into the home building business. And then, of course, material costs, they've come down from the peak in the pandemic, but they're still relatively high. So all these things make for an inhospitable building environment. And so we need we need to find some way to, to get over that and get the homes built anyway. I think it's, you know, there's no easy solutions here. I think ultimately to get those homes built, we're going to need some kind of innovation. We can't build homes in the business as usual way that we have for the past, you know, 50, 60, 100 years. We need new, te- we, we need, you know, some innovation in the way we do things to make better use of existing labor uh, in order to bring down the cost per house and and to increase the amount that can be built with that limited amount of labor that we have. So big challenge. I don't know what the solution is yet, but um, but you know it's it's a big challenge. Just just from you know personal experience over the years, having watched city council debate zoning and debate new construction, and then sort of the hoops that, that developers have to jump through. And of course, people are suspicious of new development. Obviously, you know there is this idea that uh, you know density is not great, and we're not you know we don't want to look like Hong Kong and so on and so forth. Cities that I've been to, even London is a very dense city, right? But you know you know there is a lot of factors pushing against this, and, and yes. I mean, one of them is even I mean how expensive it is for people who work in construction to live in the cities where they're supposed to be building things. I mean, a city like Vancouver or yeah. Toronto, you know, there, there's a bunch of things standing in the way. Uh, how, how do you see the collaborate? I mean, this has to be an all government, every level of government has to collaborate here. How do you view that so far? Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Every level of government, but also the private sector as well. I mean, if you take an average house price and multiply that by the three and a half million units that need to be built, you come up with a number that's just astronomical. The government doesn't have the money to put that into housing. You know, uh, taxpayers, I think, would be very upset with the kind of tax increases that would be required because it, it would dwarf the existing total size of the federal budget. On your point about density, though, I, you know, often it's a term nimbyism you're thinking about and, 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 we have to accept that maybe in cities like Toronto and Vancouver, we do have to start to look more like London and Hong Kong because 
in some of these, so we've we've had an increased densification of Toronto and Vancouver, but that densification still falls way short of a lot of other international cities uh, that you might want to compare them to. And the, the thing of it is, is we did a, a report a couple of years ago. It was an escalating house price study. And we found in that report, well, we estimated that about 80% of the price of a home in Vancouver and Toronto was the land that- The land below it, right? Yeah. Right. And so in in that environment, it's very difficult to get more affordability unless you get more people per square foot or even more people per cubic foot. And so you need that density to bring the share of the land cost per unit down so that you can get to affordability. I think those are the kinds of challenges places like Manhattan faced 50 years ago. We're now facing it in places like Toronto and Vancouver in, the, in recent years. And so something has to change. And, you know, um, we have this idea in, in Canada that to be successful means getting that two-story, four-bedroom house with the backyard and, and all that. And maybe we have to start rethinking that in, in cities like Toronto and Vancouver in particular, where land prices are so high, that might not be a reasonable expectation. We have to start looking at success differently. And success can be just being able to afford a place like a, re- a rental unit, you know, uh, th- that you can sort of put your family up in and, and raise a family. Uh, we, we have to start li- considering that to be success. So there's no shame in having to live that way, particularly when, you know, no no generation that came before was facing these kinds of costs in Toronto and Vancouver. And so it, it is a different world. It, 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 it's, well, an evolving world with much higher land costs. And we have to sort of adjust our expectations in that environment because I don't think the land costs are coming down. Bob Dugan is the chief economist at the CMHC. He's with us this half hour talking about just the look into housing that they've done of late. They're worried about there just not being enough supply. There's so much demand. We know that's driving up prices, even though interest rates are high, rents rents are going up, mortgage payments are going up. It's all getting more expensive. And without more supply, it's going to stay that way. Um, you mentioned a few earlier, Bob, about some of the solutions you could see. I've seen ideas like purpose-built rentals was something that came up, where you have to try and find more rentals for those who need them. But you're right. I mean, government level, all levels of government can't be building houses the way they take care of healthcare. It's unaffordable. So what 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 needs to be done? Well, you know, it, 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 it's tricky. So basically, the private sector has to be involved. And we have to find out ways to incent the private sector to build these things. And so that's, that's part of the conversation that has to happen, you know, because a lot of the densification that's happened in places like Vancouver and Toronto has been condos that are bachelor units, one bedroom condos, not really suitable for raising children, right? And so you might need to have more two and three bedroom densification happening. And so what's it going to take to get that built? Purpose-built rental is an ideal solution in the long term because the rental market, when it's well supplied, should be and usually is less expensive than ownership housing. And that is where most people you know, with lower incomes will turn to to get their housing. We have to build that, but it takes time, right? In, in Toronto, someone told me that from the, the amount of time, from the time you decide that you want to build a purpose-built rental building to the time that people are moving in, that, that gap of time could be eight, eight and a half years. And so it's not an instant solution. If we start building all the purpose-built rental we need today, it can take many years before it's in place and, and, and providing a house over people's heads. So I think in the short term, we have to be creative as well, making more use of existing housing. Right. So- you know, if, if if there are a lot of homes out there with ba- vacant bedrooms, can we incent people to rent out a bedroom uh, to someone? Are there ways to, you know, incent the creation of more basement apartments, laneway homes, these kinds of things that can maybe be done more rapidly, get some supply out there because purpose-built rental takes time. 
What about what about stuff like office buildings and industrial spaces that are, are becoming less needed? We're seeing some of that. I mean, it's, I, I know it's a bit of an exaggeration at times, just how much empty office space there is actually out there. But is there an opportunity to to use some of those existing office spaces that may not be needed in the future to try to figure out a way to make those rentals? Or is that a bit of a non-starter? No, I, I think there are efforts like that underway, and, and there are some CMHC programs that, that, that are helping with some of that. It's not just office space, but things like, you know, old retail malls, regional malls that are, are you know, or have more vacancies in them now. You have to look at ways to find existing structures and, and see how feasible it is to turn them into housing for folks. And so those are all things that I think have to be on the table as we look for solutions in order to increase supply a little more quickly. Because as I said, Building from new can take time, and you know there, there's by all by all accounts an affordability crisis on right now. Uh, not not just for low income folks that need uh, subsidized, uh, deeply affordable housing, but many people who have you know reasonable middle class incomes in some cities are having trouble affording the kinds of rents that are being charged in this supply constrained market. And so it's not just the low income folks; it's you know people in middle incomes as well struggling with affordability, and we need to do something to help. Right. And with rising interest rates to those who bought in and so on. It sounds like, I mean, Bob, it's, it sounds like we kind of know what, what the solution is here. Uh, what we need is the imagination or the innovation to make it work. I mean, because we're trying to make up for a lot of lost time. And that's difficult to make up for 40 years of sort of undersupply. Absolutely. I mean, when we put out that three and a half million unit estimates, our estimate was at about two to 2.1 million units of that gap already existed in 2021. Right. And so going from 2.1 million to three and a half million was was from 2021 to, to 2030, but the gap is already there and it's significant. And so absolutely, we need to find creative ways to do it because interest rates are going to be higher than they were prior to the pandemic. And if people aren't able to get into home ownership, that's going to mean some people are staying in the rental market. That's putting a challenge on rental affordability. We have very strong population growth, you know, with immigration being very high right now. A lot of immigrants, when they first come to Canada, well, they all need a place to live. Many of them start in the rental market. That puts pressure on demand, pressure on affordability. All these things need to be taken into account, and we need to try to build the homes. Immigration is a good thing for us. I mean, it brings in people with skills that can help meet some of the labor shortages. Uh, so if Canada isn't perceived as this wonderful land of opportunity because housing affordability is deteriorated, we won't be able to attract those immigrants and we lose that benefit of all these uh, people that come to here with skills that can help us meet some of the, the skills gaps that exist. So whether that's construction trades, doctors, nurses, all these things that we need right now, we can get them through immigration fairly quickly, but you know they have to be attracted to Canada. Yeah, you need. I mean, you need somewhere to live. It's about a ba- as basic as it gets, right? And Absolutely. that's that's uh, Bob Dugan. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. It was a, it was it was great talking to you. Very little information out of North Korea these days, especially information the regime doesn't want you to see. That's the kind of thing you'll likely see on TV. That's one of those big celebrations they hold right in the center of Pyongyang. I've been to one, oddly enough, about 13 years ago now. Um, and they are spectacular. They are obviously displays of uh, 
you know, normalcy, wealth, power, nuclear weapons at times. Uh, this year's, that one you were just hearing was back in February. Kim Jong-un was there with his daughter by his side, watching those celebrations to mark 75 years since the founding of North Korea's army. Army It included its largest ever display of nuclear weapons. You want to know a funny factoid? You know all that cheering you hear? Uh, it's it, a lot of it's not real. It's they 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 pipe that that cheering in. It's fake, um, which was one of the strangest things I found. I was standing there watching one of these sorts of big celebrations uh, many years ago in Pyongyang, and uh, I thought, well, wow, the, the cheering is always really loud when you see them on TV, and then I realized that a lot of the cheering is actually. I mean, people are cheering along. Don't you know they have to, um, but the noise, a lot of the noise is actually coming. It's canned. It's coming from speakers, just in case you you wanted to know. But those sorts of events mask something much darker that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, North Korea's horrific human rights record is nothing new. But the COVID-19 pandemic has transformed an already deeply repressive regime into something even worse. Since the country closed its borders in early 2020, the arrival of vital goods such as food and medicine has dwindled. Aid workers and diplomats have left. And there's been a real crackdown on crossing the border into neighboring China. That's all but trapped North Koreans in this downward spiral with no means to escape. It's also cut off a lot of the uh, black market trade that was going on that essentially sustained the place. Um, and what is exactly is going on inside Kim Jong-un's uh, so-called hermit kingdom these days is tough to verify given it is very much now cut off from the outside world. One commentator said it's always been a black hole of information and it's gotten even darker over the past few years. The trickle of information that has escaped those says that things are dire, that there describes uh, incidents of hunger, starvation, even uh, empty markets, soaring food prices, chronic shortages of medicine, and conditions that have left many living on the edge of survival. Joining me now with more on this is Sokil Park. He is the South Korea Country Director for Liberty in North Korea. Sokil, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Tell, I mean, it, it, you realize, and I, I guess it's because uh, during the de last, you know, during the 2010s, we sort of had, you know, a little bit more of, of a glimpse into kind of things. I guess Associated Press had a bureau in Pyongyang, and we were sort of, we saw a bit of what was going on in North Korea. And I once I saw... Uh, some of the stuff that you were involved in recently, I realized we hear very, very little about what's happening in North Korea these days. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, um, especially just in the years before the pandemic, uh, it feels like a long time ago, but there was really, um, you know, a high watermark of interest and attention on North Korea with all of the symmetry between Kim Jong-un and President Donald Trump and the South Korean president, Moon Jae-in. Um, you know, after the threat of war in 2017, the angry tweets, um, you know, all of these meetings, 2018, 2019. And then basically from 2020, with the start of the pandemic, things got shut off. The world's attention went to other issues, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine, of course, uh, and the pandemic itself. And that's really coincided with the North Korean people probably facing the most severe hardship uh, in decades. Right, because I've heard, I mean, I, I remember, um, obviously remember the stories from the 1990s and the arduous march and so on, and the uh, the millions that are expected, that are suspected of having died of starvation back then. Uh, it, it sounds from seeing the little information escaping that situation, the situation in North Korea right now is not that far off from, from that kind of, of a dire circumstance. Yeah, unfortunately, it's very hard to know just how bad things are and to quantify this and to know 
how many deaths from starvation there may have been during the pandemic period. But at this point, we have you know multiple credible sources reporting uh, deaths from starvation happening again inside the country and in different regions. And uh, uh, you know we know things are bad. We know that the food security is very precarious. We know that it's different from previous times of uh, severe hardship because. You know, it's not just that people don't have enough food, but the repression has increased at the same time, you know, under the name of pandemic control. The smuggling with the outside world has been pretty much shut off, um, you know, people's movement even inside the country. And so their their ability to fend for themselves, to find ways to survive, it's so much more difficult than before. And so uh, it's it's extremely concerning, but you know part of that is that we don't have the full picture, and it may take us even years to really know just how bad this period was. The shutting of the border is, is a big deal uh, for for listeners who don't know. Uh, North Korea and China share a fairly fairly extensive border, uh, and it and it is it ha- was fairly permeable for a while there. Where you know clearly after the arduous march and the famine of the nineties, uh, the North Korean state was unable to to provide for its own people, and you know smuggling became a big part of the economy, and and that is is that all is that been all but shut down now is that is that what's happened i gather that that they made that border a lot more impenetrable than it used to be yeah that's exactly what we hear from uh, you know sources inside the country and from north korean refugees who you know are sometimes in contact with families and, and people that they know inside north korea that uh, it had been more difficult you know border security had increased during the last 10 years in the kim jong-un era but basically since january 2020 they shut it down. There have been a lot of reports of orders to shoot on site people approaching or trying to cross the river. There's been an increase in security on the Chinese side as well. And in the you know just in the last two years, satellite imagery has picked up this really significant in- increase in the security infrastructure, walls and fencing and guard posts along that long border with China. And so Basically, now people are talking about the border with China being almost as impossible to cross as the border with South Korea, which is, of course, the most heavily fortified border in the world. Right. And one can imagine that both Beijing and Pyongyang took advantage of the uh, of the pandemic to, to crack down this way, right? This wouldn't have happened unless both sides wanted it to happen. Yeah, and you know we can see this as kind of an inflection point on the previous trends. Um, you know the the number of North Korean refugees making it to South Korea had halved uh, from the Kim Jong Il period to the Kim Jong Un period, and then it had continued to decrease even before the pandemic. In twenty nineteen, only just over a thousand North Korean refugees made it to South Korea, and that was the lowest figure in two decades. But then with the pandemic it's dropped down to just around 60 people per year in the last two years. Thankfully, now there, is, there are some you know, signs of hope. Um, the, uh, some of the you know, cross-border movement between North Korea and China seems to have resumed a little bit. And so maybe the food security situation is, is uh, improving a little bit. And maybe, North, you know, maybe hopefully North Korean people are through the worst of the hardship during the pandemic. And also in China, you know, since the end of last year, the zero COVID policy, uh, as they called it, 
has kind of been normalized and more movement of North Korean refugees has been possible. And so we're seeing an uptick in the number of North Korean refugees able to make it all the way to South Korea, but it's still so much lower than it was before the pandemic. And it's very expensive and very dangerous to try and move North Korean refugees. Right. And, and it's, when one think, thinks back to the 90s and that, and that group um, of North Koreans, one would expect this generation of North Koreans uh, must, be, have, must have been so much more exposed to the outside world uh, that it must be hard. I mean, repression must, ha- must have to be, the, the ruling with the other uh, fist must be that much more iron now to try to keep a lid on, on dissent. Yeah. And, you know, it's been very interesting during the pandemic where, you know, the the pandemic was difficult for the North Korean government, like it was difficult for a lot of governments. Um, and they recognized the difficulties. Kim Jong-un himself recognized that the country was facing hardship like they've not seen for a long time and talked explicitly about the problems with the food supply. You know, these, these are it's not that common that the North Korean government will admit weaknesses and problems, um, but they were doing that. But at the same time, it's very revealing that they enacted new laws to crack down on foreign media and even the effects of foreign culture inside the country in late 2020 and 2021. Uh, and this reveals their priorities, right? They understand the threat of the North Korean people learning things that the North Korean government doesn't want them to know the weakening of the ideology and propaganda and people may be having more, you know, dissenting thoughts uh, and that may be leading in the long term to a challenge to their authority. And so they're very concerned about these kind of things. And that's why there's been this kind of double whammy during the pandemic of a shortage of basic necessities, but also increased repression, if anything, you know, before the pandemic, we probably didn't even think that, that was possible, that North Korea could become even more closed and even more repressive. But unfortunately, that's exactly what's happening. Sokil Park is with us this half hour. He is the South Korea Country Director for Liberty in North Korea. We're talking about the situation in North Korea, a country that's kind of disappeared back into a uh, dark hole of information uh, since the height of the pandemic. And much is going on behind the scenes. We're not quite sure how bad the humanitarian situation is, but the little information that does escape has suggested that things uh, have been bad that there has been a humanitarian crisis at least around food supply there's very little food it's expensive and so on the extent of it is unclear uh, so Kiel, you know I, I was there i think when kim jong-un was introduced to the world so this goes back maybe 13 years he was just about 26 at the time he's only in his late 30s now there was a lot of speculation that he might not be able to to hold things together for the Kim family for a third generation. Meanwhile, back in February, we saw him with his daughter. It looks like he's managed to cement his hold on power. At least that's what it looks like from the outside. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely how I think a lot of people see it, including inside North Korea as well, from what we know from North Korean defectors. Uh, and, you know, back when he first came on the scene and when he took power in 2012, some North Koreans even hoped that because he was young, because, you know, people knew that he'd spent time abroad studying in Switzerland. Um, and also some of the things that he said influenced this as well. People hoped that maybe he would take the country in a different direction. And uh, there was some, you know, reason for that kind of hope in the early years. And even up until, you know, when he was coming out to the negotiations in 2018, 2019 with the South Korean president and with President Trump. Uh, you know, 
that might have played out in a different way. But unfortunately, it failed. And since then, with the pandemic, the North Korean government has taken this very hardline, very paranoid stance of closing themselves off to the outside world even more than before, coming becoming even more repressive, um, not seeming to be that bothered about the increased hardship and even starvation for the North Korean people. And one worry for the long term here is that Kim Jong-un, as now you know a leader with 10 years of top leadership experience, has kind of learned how to manage this country uh, in its even more closed and repressive state. And so a lot of activists working on this issue and North Korean refugees are worried about a potential long-term legacy of this. Right. And and yet still, you know, still lots of money to spend on the nuclear program and ever ever bigger nuclear weapons being showed uh, shown off at that parade back in February. So clearly the the survival of the regime and building itself a nuclear program to protect it uh, remains as primordial as it did back in the 90s when people were starving to death, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, this, uh, if anything, there have been even more missile tests over the last year and a half. Um, they, like you say, doesn't seem to have a shortage of resources to spend on that. And I think that one of the things that the outside world should learn from this experience during the pandemic is that it's very hard to effectively sanction North Korea uh, in a way that is going to make them change their behavior. Because what we've seen during the pandemic is the North Korean government effectively sanctioning themselves, isolating right. themselves, closing themselves off from the outside world, more so than the United States government or other governments could ever even really hope to do. You add on to that the fact that the United Nations Security Council is now basically dysfunctional with you know the, the rift between the US and China and the US and Russia. It doesn't seem like they can get on the same page about a raft of issues, including North Korea. And so this pressure tactic of sanctions and isolation that used to be the go-to for the international community with North Korea just doesn't seem like a good option anymore. And Beijing, it seems, is still has no real interest in putting any more pressure on, on Pyongyang than it has to or wants to. Yeah, you know, that's been the kind of long-standing kind of point of tension between especially the United States and China in terms of the United States always wanting China to play more of a role in pressuring North Korea back to the negotiation table and so on. But to be honest, at this point, it seems like there's not that much that even the Chinese government could do. Um, again, you know, the, the North Korean government doesn't seem like it wants to come back to the negotiation table. It seems like it's very okay with absorbing all of that pressure and hardship that comes from being so isolated from the outside world. And so there are things that the Chinese government could do, including, for instance, being more helpful with North Korean refugees, uh, not forcibly repatriating people that escape from North Korea, allowing people to go through to, to South Korea. But the, the chances for a major movement in that, given the state of US-China relations and the way that China sees its uh, interests with North Korea, unfortunately seem to be quite low. Yeah, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Sakil Park, thank you so much for your time on this tonight. Thank you. Hino and Latsko combined on two goals. Quinn! Yes! Their first goal of the year. 
Now, that was a big moment for one of Team Canada's stars in soccer. Quinn scored their first goal uh, for the OL Reign, who play in uh, Seattle for the na- in the National Women's Soccer League. That was a big moment. You heard the name Megan Rapinoe in there as well. Of course, she plays for Team USA. I say all this because one of the most exciting events of this upcoming summer will indeed be, and summer is about to begin tomorrow morning, uh, in Eastern Canada and Western Canada at least, uh, one of the most exciting events of this summer will be the Women's World Cup. It's being played down under. Australia and New Zealand are co-hosting. Um, it's an expanded field of 32 teams that will compete to dethrone uh, the consecutive champions. The Americans have won twice in a row. It's the ninth edition of the tournament. Canada's first match is a month from today against Nigeria in Melbourne, Australia. Canada, of course, is coming off gold at the Tokyo Olympics in 2021, which included victories over the U.S. and Sweden in the final. And we're among the contenders this time, ranked seventh in the world going in behind teams like England and France, Germany, Spain, Sweden, and of course, the Americans. We find ourselves in a pretty tough group, though, with home side Australia, Nigeria, and the Republic of Ireland. Certainly Australia and Nigeria has been playing pretty well of late. Uh, as I mentioned, it's being held in both Australia and New Zealand. It stretches across a month, with the final being played in Sydney. Of course, women's soccer has gotten a huge boost in this country over the past quite a while, but certainly in the past decade and a bit, with some incredibly memorable performances, including at the 2012 Olympics in London, hosting the Women's World Cup in 2015, and stars on the team have become household names in this country, and the kind of people that young athletes should be looking up to. My next guest, of course, is one of them. Uh, They'll be making the trip down under. Midfielder Quinn, I mentioned, plays for uh, OL Reign, based in Seattle, where U.S. stars such as Megan Rapinoe and Rose Lavelle also play, um, as does Team Canada teammate Jordan Hatima and uh, Quinn joins me now. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I've, you know, it's it's really uh, snuck up quite quickly. Uh, you know, it's we're now just a month away from the opening match against Nigeria. What an exciting! T- I mean, the World Cup is always so exciting. It must be even it must be indescribably thrilling to be part of it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's something that I've been wanting to do since I was younger. I got the lucky chance to be a part of the last World Cup, but I mean, it comes every four years, so it's a really special experience for for everyone involved. And uh, I'm really excited to to head off soon and and be a part of it. Yeah, it looks like. I mean, uh, when what you know, there are 32 teams this time, so it's an expanded field. I think people who watched the men's World Cup recently will know what that looks like in 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 practice. But it seems like it's gotten really competitive of late. Like there are a lot of really 20 years ago, there were maybe three or four good teams, and now there are a whole bunch of good teams. And when watching the Men's World Cup, you realize there can be some shocks if you're not on your game early on. Yeah, I mean, that's the fun part about soccer is you honestly, it could go any way, any given day. And so I think that's the exciting bit. And then as well, you're seeing there's been so much investment in the women's game recently. And with that, um, the competitiveness of a lot of national teams, whether it's through Europe and North America, we're just seeing tighter score lines, more upsets. And so I think it's a really exciting time. I think it's nerve wracking in the sense that no game is a write off. You really have to be prepared for anything. But I think it's really exciting to see how the game has evolved and, and really how competitive it is today because you played in europe right you played in paris now you're playing again in seattle uh, and it is it's it's hyper competitive yeah it it really is and you're seeing that with the club club teams as well in my time in in paris and sweden and, and now in the united states there's such competitive leagues and the depth of the players that each league has is it's it's incredible to watch 
So in terms of Canada, I know you're headed there. I mean, this is this is a long way from home, right? And and you have a bit of a nasty travel schedule, I think, for some of your for one of your matches at least here. But you have the hosts in your group, which is always uh, tough because the hosts usually play better than they than they generally do when they're at home. But what should what should fans be looking out for? Because there's so much hype about the team after the gold medal. Everyone's really excited, but it's going to be a challenging tournament. There's lots of obstacles in the way. Yeah, and I think some people have even called our group the group of death. I'm sure you could look at other groups and say the same thing as well, but I think it is a really exciting time, and our opponents in the group stage, they're all going to give us different things. I mean, you have Australia, who's the host. Um, They're going to come out just guns blazing, uh, having the home crowd in front of them. And then you have a Republic of Ireland who, you know, is new to the national stage in terms of their tournament berths. But they're an exciting team to watch as well. And I think they're a really gritty, a tough team. Uh, So that'll be a difficult opponent as well. And then Nigeria will provide also some challenges. And so I think for us, it's really being smart in the group and not taking any team for granted and hopefully getting through well and putting us in a good position to move into the knockout rounds. Right. Because in Tokyo, the the teams you had to go through to win gold, I mean, it was it was remarkable, right? It was really it was if you were sitting at home watching it, it was a blast, but I can't imagine it was always a blast to be there because it's tense. The reality is if we're going to win the World Cup, we have to win many games against top tier opponents, you know, the best in the world. And so I think that's the reality for us is is no game is going to be a walkthrough and uh, we got to take it game by game. What's it like to get back together? I know you played you played France not long ago in a friendly and now you're but what's it like to, to bring because you, you, you fit your, your rivals sometimes in your in, in the in the national leagues. What's it like to get the whole team back together and how difficult is it, is it to find the groove again? Yeah, I think it's an exciting time for us. I think when we have shorter lead ups between games that can be really difficult because you're trying to establish those partnerships yet again you haven't played with some folks for a couple of months and so I think for us it's really exciting that we have a really good chunk of time before the tournament starts to really establish what our partnerships on the field looks like you know getting back into um, how players are playing and the style of soccer we want to play I think that'll be really beneficial that we have a good amount of preparation time before the matches and that's happening in Melbourne for for us right Mm mm-hmm in the old in the 1956 Olympic Stadium I think or in and around there which is which is kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. What are some of the things just as an individual what are you looking forward to? I mean this is your second World Cup, right? You played in 20 uh you played in the in the last one as well. Do you have to compete to get your spot on the team in other words? Like does it become friendly but competitive even amongst national teams? Yeah, I think once we have our group of 23, it's um, going to be just about building the team chemistry and team atmosphere. And, you know, you never take any time that you put on the jersey for granted. And so I think for us, it's just taking every single moment. For me, having it being my second World Cup, I think it's a good opportunity as someone who's been on the team for almost 10 years now to really show a new level of leadership and lead the younger players. Because I know our our younger folks are going to have really instrumental roles in our team this time. And so I think for me, it's making sure that they feel empowered and that they have a voice in our conversations on and off field and so that they can make an impact because I think, you know, I am a leader on this team from my experience now. Yeah, I was looking down the list and, I, and you forget, you know, there are players now you're going to be playing with who are born well into the 2000s, right? It's uh, you're, you're one of the veteran players on the team now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, when it, when it comes to just to soccer itself, I mean, when I was growing up, soccer was, you know, we liked it, but I remember when we qualified for the men's world cup in 86, I remember the first women's world cup, uh, but it's taken time, but it feels like we're a soccer country now, just the excitement around, around the, the nation's final the other night, uh, between Canada and the U S and the lead up to that on the men's side, 
And then, of course, all the excitement over Tokyo and then the World Cup, of course. It feels like Canada is becoming that soccer place now that every tournament, lots of TVs will be turned on and lots of people will be paying attention. I think so. I really think, you know, the movement around the game has just grown so much in the past couple of years. You know, our men's domestic league having good success. And then as well with the introduction of the women's league coming in a couple of years time. I think it's a really exciting time for soccer in Canada. And hopefully we can just use this to keep the momentum going and, and continue to grow the game and grow fans um, in our home country. Yeah, because I was reading that you you played lots of sports uh, when you were younger. Your parents are, are very athletic, and soccer was your number one right off the bat. And that's that's not you can't say that for for all Canadian kids. It'd be nice to see more follow your path. Yeah, definitely. Growing up wasn't something soccer wasn't something I was consuming in my day to day life. I wasn't watching it on TV. That wasn't really accessible for me. And so I luckily got to see our women's national team play a couple of times when they came into town. But beyond that, it really wasn't something that I was watching much. Um, so I was lucky enough to just fall in love with the sport, just locally playing in my backyard and in Little League. Um, but hopefully that becomes a thing where more folks can, can watch their idols on TV and can watch them in the stands. Quinn is the starting midfielder with Canada's national women's soccer team. The World Cup starts a month from today in Australia and New Zealand. Canada are in the same group uh, as Australia, as a matter of fact, as well as the Republic of Ireland and Nigeria. It's always it's become very, very competitive, even in the early stages of these tournaments now, not to mention as it goes on. Uh, Quinn, tell me a bit about, I mean, the Olympic medal, there was a lot talked about being the first openly trans, non-binary athlete to win an Olympic medal. Uh, a lot was made of that. Of course, it, there's been a lot going on of late around that very issue. Uh, you're also acting as a mentor to younger players. Um, how do you see yourself as, as a mentor these days? Because I gather as you get older too, that that whole idea of being a role model changes. You start to teach instead of just learn. Yeah, I think um, taking on that mentorship role has been huge for me and, um, you know, my enjoyment of the game and being able to pass on my experiences to younger generations. I'm actually a part of a really exciting initiative that's coming up. It's the GE Appliances Canada See Them Be Them initiative. And it's going to be an opportunity um, for young players on girls soccer teams to get a chance to interact with their mentors. And in this opportunity, it's going to be me. And so eight uh, players across the country will be selected for an in-person program this fall and they get an all expenses paid trip to the see them be them initiative and they'll have on pitch opportunities with me in order to you know just have fun and enjoy themselves and then as well off pitch mentorship sessions that'll give players a chance to have a conversation we can talk about you know the highs and lows of their own experiences as well as what my journey has been like so that's a really exciting moment for me to be able to connect with younger generations and you can apply through the geappliances.ca in order to apply yeah Great. No, it sounds like a great program. Part of the way that it was pitched, too, is is that, it, you know, there, there is always concern um, that girls tend to drop out of sports a lot more than, than boys do. And, 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 and to try to encourage girls to stay and play uh, is something that, I mean, I think just watching the World Cup and having an opportunity to watch players such as yourself and your teammates compete at such a high level may, might encourage a whole generation of young youths to sort of want to be this. But that individual mentorship is always, you know, especially as you're as you're getting older, must be a really important part of it. Yeah, I think it is a really important part of it. And as you said, we're seeing that we're seeing young girls drop out, especially in the age of, you know, 
young adulthood. And so that's why this is um, especially targeted to um, young soccer players age 13 to 17 to hopefully keep them in the game at a time where, you know, there might not be as many resources for girls soccer. There might be other pressures outside of that. And so hopefully this is another opportunity for people to connect with their mentors and to see that they have a pathway, whether it be through a college sports experience, whether it just be for fun or, you know, moving on to the national team. I think people keeping sport in their lives is so important and hopefully that just pushes over another hurdle that some are facing. Because you, you, I mean, I, I know growing up, just looking at what you'd done, you, you've always had sports in your life, right? It must have had a real impact on on a lot of on a lot of aspects. I mean, obviously, you went to Duke, and you know, there, it's been it's been great to you, but you've had to work for it. Yeah, definitely. I think you know, sports can be a really difficult thing, and I know now it being my job, it definitely adds another pressure to that. But I think for me, it was definitely an outlet. And as said before, I was the first transgender athlete to compete at the Olympics, be openly out. And so I think for me, sports was a safe haven at times where I could just forget about the difficulties I was facing in my day to day and go on the pitch and just have fun and have fun with my friends. And so I think sports can be so crucial in our day to day lives. When it comes to when it comes to that aspect of your life as well, which I know, I mean, you've talked about it at length, uh, and we know the, the sort of the politicization of that conversation going on in the U.S. right now. What would you like ultimately as a role model? What would you like to portray as as you're at these games? I mean, this is going to be the World Cup is going to be a venue too that that where I'm sure this will be talked about. Yeah, and I think the reality is there are some. There are some really harsh realities when it comes to transgender participation in sports. I think for me, it's um, just sending the message that people belong in sports, trans athletes belong in sports. Um, Sports are for everyone. I think sports are a basic human right um, and everyone should have access to that. And so that's the messaging that I'm going to get across, as well as the fact that you're not alone. I think it can be a really isolating experience for folks who are going through that. And so for me, it's being able to form a sense of community, show the troubles that I've been through so people feel less alone in their experiences. Do you get the impression that uh, there's more understanding now? I remember when you first when you first announced uh, when you first came out there there was you know you you expressed disappointment that people still used your your given name and and there there was some bumpy there was some bumps along that road. Do you feel like things are evolving at all now? Yeah, I think education is a huge part of it, and fortunately, I think there's been a lot more conversation in our day to day life and. That includes education. And so I've seen, um, you know, such a change even on my teams and in the education piece has helped so much. But yeah, the reality is I still think there's some ignorance that I face day to day. So hopefully we'll just keep moving on a trajectory where, you know, it's more inclusive and people are more understanding of how to be better allies in our environments. And then we have the GE Appliance See Them Be Them coming up a little later in the year. You have a, you have a big job ahead before that starts, but they can go to the GE Appliance website to find more information about that, right? Yeah, you can be nominated or you can apply at geappliances.ca and those are open now and it'll go till August 21st. And then the experience itself is going to be in the fall, both in person for the eight players and then as well an additional 100 players are going to be selected for a virtual experience. So it's a really exciting time to look out. Yeah, you're going to be in this. That's that's a lot of pressure, Quinn. (laughs) You're going to have to coach all these all these eager young, young, young players That, that might be. I don't know. That sounds daunting. Great, but I think but I can handle it. I think I can handle it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess for Canadian uh, watchers too. I, I mean, yeah, there's gonna be a lot of pressure at the World Cup. I just, I, I, I look at, at at our team and think after the gold medal that there's going to be so much anticipation. But you know, it looks like such a, such a tough. It's going to be a tough draw, no doubt. Or it is already a tough draw. And even into the elimination rounds, it'll be tough. But uh, it must be nice to know there are so many people watching and supporting now. Because I remember a time when it wasn't like that. 
Yeah, I mean, we all know that Canada is behind us. I think we've been so lucky with the support that we've gotten and and we really do feel it. Um looking back on Tokyo and having no fans in the stands, it was so important for us to feel that love from back home and so this is going to be similar being so far away in Australia. We really do feel that support and we appreciate all of it. Well, Quinn, best of luck at the World Cup coming up in Australia and best of luck with the uh, GE Appliances See Them Be Them project. Sounds like a great one. Thank you so much. We're talking about sleep. We're heading into the longest day of the year. It's always summer solstice is always kind of a big deal, isn't it? I remember when I was living in England, all the mania surrounding uh, Stonehenge was always a big deal. I asked you a bit about your sleep habits tonight. Uh, One listener says, love eight or nine hours sleep. I have ever since I was a kid. Now being retired, I may even do an hour nap during the day. I love a good nap if I can have one. Usually I have what, what they call inadvertent naps, which means I'm reading or something and I just fall asleep. This is That's a recent thing. So I guess I'm not getting enough sleep at night, but eight or nine hours sleep, that's perfect. And uh, Sizzlin' Steve in North Band says the Snoring Saurus was the first to sleep, better known as the Shut the Hell Up. Yeah, the Snoring Saurus. Uh, not far off, you know, not far off. We actually have to go back further than that because what I saw this article recently, and every once in a while you'll be reading something and think, wow, that's fascinating. And how come I never thought about this? What organism, what thing, what creature in the great in the great collective we on this planet, back to the beginnings of time, uh, which was the first one to have a snooze? And he thought, well, what a great question. I wonder what the first one to have a snooze actually was. Now, we know that, you know, uh, different animals, different species of animals uh, – in the in the kingdom sleep differently right i mean some sort of uh some shut off parts of their brain and can sort of half sleep uh others obviously like humans and so on mammals generally sleep generally um sleep the same but it it turns out that you know almost all animals sleep and in the past decade or so researchers have found that even those without a brain such as jellyfish sleep sort of so, and, and it's really interesting how they do sleep and it starts to offer, uh, first of all, it starts to get rid of some of the, you know, some of the things that we first thought were true about why animals need to sleep. In other words, you don't necessarily need a nervous system to need to sleep or a brain for that matter, um, that maybe all animals sleep. And if that's true, then how far back do you have to go to find the first creature that took a snooze and what did it look like? I mean, these are all sort of uh, esoteric questions, but it's a really interesting uh, subject. And the person who did that research on jellyfish was, in fact, my next guest, Michael Abrams. He's a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. And uh, he studies sleep in things that you would not expect to sleep. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for your time. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's such a great topic, and and I think you you just briefly you were mentioning why that is. It's because it's science that is infinitely and perhaps most infinitely relatable to everyone. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, you know sometimes science can be a little esoteric, and uh, when you're trying to explain what you're doing to people, their eyes glaze over pretty quickly. When you're trying to get into the details, and I think uh, when you say uh, I study sleep. They're like, oh, I know what sleep is. And I, I know what it feels like when I don't sleep. And you say, well, jellyfish sort of feel the same way. They're, they're like, what? You Jellyfish. You know? Yeah, who do? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, tell me how you got into this, because obviously before you got to figuring out whether jellyfish like to have a quick snooze here and there, you, there was sort of a, a beginnings of all this. Yeah, definitely. So when I started graduate school, 
I started uh, with studying regeneration and I started asking questions on, on how uh, varied regeneration can be and, and, and what some animals are capable of regenerating from. Some pretty catastrophic uh, events can happen to jellyfish and they can recover, um, especially other types of uh, cnidarians, which is the type of animal jellyfish are. And so I started working with jellyfish in the lab and was asking other types of questions, but then started bringing in more and more species. And um, this upside down jellyfish, Cassiopeia, has this um, really easy to see behavior because it doesn't swim around in the water like most jellyfish you can imagine. It sits on the bottom and it pulses. And so I was able to see that it started changing its behavior when I turn the lights on versus the lights off. And I started thinking about maybe they sleep and (laughs) maybe it's having a rest. Wow. Well, I I did have some help. I had some friends who were working in sleep and working on on data analysis stuff. And and so we started just throwing ideas around and yeah, sort of formed this project. So from there, uh, you quite uh, publicly and quite well, in a a very well-received way, uh, determined that jellyfish, in fact, do seem to sleep, that they display a lot of the behaviors that we all do when when both sleeping and being woken up. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, you might think that you need to have like uh, a brain scan going on, a person, an MRI to figure out if someone's asleep. That is partially true if you want to study really specific questions about brain regions and more sophisticated maybe questions. But if you just want to find out if an animal is awake or asleep, the community, the scientific community has sort of settled on some core characteristics. And the first is uh, what we call a quiescent state, something that's a low activity, but it's reversible. So that just means like it's not a coma or anesthesia, right? If you if you tap someone and they're sl- and they're sleeping, maybe you have to tap them pretty hard, but they'll wake up, right? right. It's not the same thing if you're in a coma. And uh, the second is homeostatic regulation, which just means there's this increasing pressure to sleep if you are awake. And if you are deprived of your, let's say, nighttime sleep in some way, then that next day or during that deprivation, you'll, you'll start to have this increasing need to sleep. And you might recognize that if you pulled an all-nighter or if you've had jet lag or if you have an infant, all these things can really push you into sleep deprivation. You can just crash at any point that next day or anytime after until you have recovery from it. And the last category is uh, is called uh, increased latency or threshold to arousal. And that just means that uh, if you are asleep or if you're in this quiescent state, you are going to take longer or require a higher level of stimuli. So it, let's say you are asleep, you're more likely to take longer or need a louder alarm. Like if you hear an alarm and you're awake, you're going to immediately be like, ah, there's an alarm. It's going off right right next to me. But if you're asleep, it takes longer. Maybe you need a louder alarm, that type of thing. So based on all those criteria, you found, in fact, the jellyfish. And and this was counterintuitive. I mean, counterintuitive. This this broke new ground because I think prior to that, the idea was always you needed a, a pretty elaborate nervous system to sleep or need to sleep. Yeah. You know, I think that there were some assumptions built in around the central nervous system, something to do with the brain is what makes us need sleep. Part of the reason it was there was some conflict around, you know, maybe it's not really sleep, maybe it's something else, 
is because of those uh, assumptions around and and the size of the community that studies sleep in other animals, right? If you're if you're trying to just describe sleep in jellyfish, right, you're you're comparing yourself to all these other huge bodies of work in in humans and mice and flies and other things that have central nervous system. So basically everyone you're talking to is studying in the sleep field anyway, is studying it in the centralized nervous system. So I think they would be more sort of inclined to think that it was something to do with the brain. But it's not just us now. We, we've found other groups have found sleep in hydra, which is a, another cnidarian. It's not a jellyfish, but it's, it's sort of like a jellyfish in that it, it doesn't have a centralized nervous system. So it's been sort of replicated. Michael Abrams is with us this half hour. He's a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. He did, he's done a lot of work on, on sleep, but not with the creatures you may think. Jellyfish. Did you know that jellyfish seem to display all the characteristics of being asleep, being woken up? They do it all. And it sort of went against what had been conventional thought that only certain animals with brains or, or nervous systems needed sleep. And this, Michael, of course, begs the incredible question, where did sleep begin? And if you bring it back to certain creatures, it can go back a long way, right? If we, if we start to go through evolution, sleep can go back an awfully long way. Absolutely. So it's not exactly known when jellyfish versus maybe the earliest, what are called bilaterians, which would have been something with bilateral symmetry, something that's got a, a, a head and a tail, right? Mm-hmm. Those things would have evolved maybe as much as a billion years ago, separating from from jellyfish, which have radial symmetry canonically anyway. So the question is, if if jellyfish sleep and if mice sleep and if flies sleep, and b- basically almost every animal that's been re- well studied has a, has a vis- noticeable sleep state, then it's a conserved thing. And if it's conserved in jellyfish and all these other things, then it would have been in a last common ancestor. And we don't exactly know when that was, but it's very old, hundreds and hundreds of millions of years. What's what's remarkable about this too is that um, I mean I, I suppose if you look at jellyfish and you you started by saying you you looked into this because you were interested in regeneration, I, I guess that's the common that's the commonality we all sleep to regenerate. In a sense, I think that's right. You know, there was work done in Hydra recently where they showed that subproliferation, which is a you know an essential core component to animal physiology, which is cells die in your body and you need to replace them so you divide cells that are already there and those that's that's proliferation proliferation is tied to growth it's tied to cancer it's you know any tumor requires cell proliferation to grow but regeneration is the recovery of lost parts so you know proliferation is involved in that as well and it's involved in sleep sleep in in hydra regulates proliferation and in jellyfish we have work that we haven't published yet that looks like it's also true in in jellyfish and it's true in the brains of mice it's true in the brains of flies it's probably true in many contexts so it looks like this incredibly basic incredibly important function that we rely on for practically everything it's one of our most basic abilities is to cell divide right it, it is regulated in, in in major way by sleep. Where to from here then? I mean, you talked about stuff you haven't published yet. Clearly, you're still working on this. And and where are you digging down to now? What is the next question you want to answer? There, there are a couple. Um, but I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is how the nervous system in jellyfish uh, changes its activity when it's sleeping versus when it's awake or, or when it's being sleep deprived. And we have some 
uh, evidence that I'm trying to publish now that would indicate that basically the the nervous system gets stuck. It, it normally has this ability to be pretty flexible and 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 to respond to basically light changes and and sleep and wake. They are pretty flexible in the way they use the nervous system. But if they're sleep deprived, they get they get stuck, and they they can't balance how they use their nervous system anymore. So I think that there's something really deeply profound about that because in a lot of ways that's what sleep is doing in in brain in the brain as well it, it's helping the homeostasis of, of many major components uh, and that's how the how memories are, are are in part maintained it's it's how molecular components have to get replenished and this homeostasis is is really fundamental and it seems to be true all the way down to jellyfish nervous system so i think this is uh, really pushing the envelope on what sleep is useful for it's 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 used for you know, animal physiology at a, at a really basic level with cell proliferation, and it also is involved in uh, how they use their nervous system. So I think, you know, sleep is this incredibly ancient, incredibly conserved behavior. And the more we learn about it in these really simple animals, the, m- the more we can learn about uh, its most uh, core functions. Right. Do jellyfish dream? I guess that, that therein lies. You're not going to be able to figure that out, but that's uh, therein lies sort of the the ultimate question. I mean, it's it's so interesting that the way that sleep works. I, I, it's odd that we would think uh, over time somehow that that organisms that that were simpler than we are to put it to put it that way didn't need the th- same things that we needed or we need, such as sleep. Yeah, you know, something like memory is is kind of a, an interesting thing to think about because. Memory is extremely complex and hard and hard thing to study, and it's been how memories are stored and how they're maintained in the nervous system is it's a pretty tricky thing to study, and people are getting at it now, getting to it now in really incredible detail. But is sleep involved in memory in a jellyfish? I I have no idea. I think that that would be a pretty neat thing to study, and I've tried to play around with that a little bit, but it's it's a tricky one. Uh, how do you figure out if a jellyfish? remembered something that there, there's some really beautiful experiments of asking these types of questions in other animals. So it, it might be possible to ask those questions in jellyfish. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to know. And one day perhaps we shall figure out where sleep began, such an integral part of, of most people's existence that, uh, uh, in fact, we talk about it all the time. We may, in fact, answer that. I never really thought that we didn't know where and when sleeping or how sleep began. It's, it's such a fascinating topic. Yeah, you know, then the next question is, like, do plants sleep? I, I, you know, I think that really, like, it's about, you know, what are the core functions and then does it map to all this behavioral stuff? Maybe not. But then it's really about like, what are the functions of sleep? And are they achieving that in some other way? Maybe we don't call it sleep. But there's a there's a debate in the field about whether or not you should really call it like that. It's more like casup- like jellyfish sleep versus worm sleep versus fly sleep versus human sleep, right? And you have to add sort of like this, you know, qualifier in front because it's still sleep, but it's the sleep in the context of that animal. So um, I think, you know, maybe there's such a thing as plant sleep, but who knows? Well, maybe we'll find out. Michael, thank you so much. Great being here. Thank you for having me. 